You've already heard the first 37 verses of Psalm 89 as part of our scripture reading earlier today. We're going to look at the whole psalm, Lord willing, in the, in the time that we have. But let me read for us uh, verses 38 to the end. And you'll notice a very different tone as uh, the psalm changes. Hopefully you heard in the, in the first 37 verses the, the praise given to God, the celebration of his faithfulness and his covenant love for his people and for David, his servant. But now things change in the psalm, and, and there's a different tone and uh, a different attitude, if you will. So again, let me read this for us, the very word of our Lord God himself. Psalm 89, verse 38 to the end. But now... You have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. And you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Salah. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. So ends the reading again of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. As we come before it this morning, let me pray for us. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Our God, our Lord, and our Father in heaven, now we come before your word this morning. We ask again that you would speak to us through it, that you would bless us by your word, and that you would fulfill the promises that you have made, that it goes out and does not return to you empty, but instead accomplishes what you purpose for it and is successful in the things for which you send it. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to see, and our ears to hear the things you have for us this morning. And in so doing, make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that we might walk according to what it teaches us. Again, Father, we ask all of this in the precious name of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Christmas is approaching. And it's time for Christmas lists. What do you want for Christmas? What a great question to hear as a kid. What do you want for Christmas? Well, let me write this down. I loved it as a kid. 
There was always Legos on my list every year until I was quite old. <laughs> but something different each year as well. And I think I've told you the story before. When I was about nine or ten, I had been going out with my dad as he golfed with friends. My job was to look for tees and errant golf balls in the bushes and whatnot. But I loved walking around, and I thought, oh, this, this might be kind of a fun thing to learn how to do. And so, again, about nine or ten, I asked my parents for a set of golf clubs for Christmas. A very, I didn't know it at the time, but a very expensive gift. Something that I really, really thought that I wanted and wanted badly. Now, my parents were smart enough not to comply with that. But I had convinced myself, this is what I really, really, really want. And that request, that, that item on the list, turned into something more than just a mere ask. I got to the point where I longed for those golf clubs. I dreamed about them. I thought about how I would go out and learn the game and be good at it and all these weird, wild dreams about playing golf. I could not stop thinking about getting those golf clubs. And I was terribly disappointed when they didn't show up. But that kind of illustrates the difference between just wanting something and deeply longing for it. Deeply desiring something. When you long for something, you do think about it continually. Dwell on that desire. Think of Ralphie in the Christmas story, and he wants that Red Ryder, you know, BB gun with a compass in the stock. He daydreams about it. He writes essays for school about it. Or think about something more innocent and, and better than a, a BB gun. Think about falling in love. I mean, really falling in love. And, how, and the longing that you have for that other person, wanting to be with them, thinking about them, having conversations in your mind with them. And when it comes to something like a gift for a birthday or Christmas or whatever it might be, who do you appeal to? You appeal to someone who can deliver the goods. <laughs> Parents, family, or friends. What we have before us in Psalm 89 is an appeal that is soaked through with longing. This isn't just a mere request. There is deep, deep desire buried in the heart of this psalm. In fact, this is the soul music of this song, that deep, deep, deep desire and longing expressed to the Lord God. What does the psalmist long for? A king. Not just any king. The king that God promised to give. The son of David. We've already seen in our short little series here in Psalm 45 what a love song for the king looks like. We've seen in Psalm 72 a prayer to give a, an ideal king. But now we're at a point where the king hasn't come He's not here yet. And the kingship, the kingdom, the monarchy is in terrible shape. Their sword is blunted. Their enemies mock them. God is disciplining them. And so a deep longing builds up for that promised king to come finally. When, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord, is it going to take? 
And I want to look at Psalm 89 in that context. How Ethan the Ezraite expresses that longing and how he frames his request to God. And I think that has some lessons for us today. So first we'll just look at the psalm itself and then kind of feel out some lessons from it. I mentioned the author Ethan the Ezraite commentators puzzle over who this is and when the psalm was written, depending on who they think it is. There is an Ezra, or Ethan the Ezraite, who appears in uh, 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 31, where Solomon is, is described as being wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. So because of this mention in connection with Solomon, some people think, well, maybe he lived at the time of Solomon. Well, that doesn't really work because the psalm pretty clearly portrays a time long after Solomon when the kingdom is in disarray. Some people say, well, maybe it's a school of people called, you know, the school of descendants or disciples of Ethan the Ezraite. I think it's a little simpler to recognize the fact that Kings was probably written long after Solomon. Someone compiled these histories of the kings of Israel and Judah and referred to Ethan the Ezraite as someone well-known as wise. And Solomon, even wiser. Think of it as something com- comparable to if I, if I said to you, the, the great theologian Augustine is wiser than Dr. Phil. Easy example. Wiser than Karl Barth. Wiser than Kierkegaard. You get what I mean. They didn't live at the same time, but the... Ethan the Ezraite, or whoever that person is, is someone you know as wise. Solomon's even wiser. That's all that's really going on in 1 Kings. And so I think whether, whether he lived, uh, we don't really know when he lived, I don't think. I don't think we can pin it down. But he lived sometime later, and it's just there as a comparison. Here is a wise man, and a wise man is writing this psalm. And we'll see, I think, his wisdom and how he writes the psalm and how he makes his request to God. The psalm, as as we saw already, divides very easily into two parts. The first 37 verses that really celebrate the faithfulness, the covenant faithfulness of the Lord God. And then verses 38 to 52, which form the, the heart of this request, this longing of the psalmist. I want to look at each of those in turn, take a little bit of time to go through the various verses. We'll do this pretty quickly because there's a lot of 52 verses. So again, the first 37, the faithfulness, the steadfastness of God is on display in these verses of the psalm. And the first line is, is really a summary of what the psalmist is doing. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. That word steadfastness, it's the word we've talked about many times, chesed, the covenant faithfulness, the loving kindness of God, his not just love that he has in general, but that particularly love he has, and particular faithfulness he has for his people. He's the covenant Lord, he's faithful to the covenant and to his covenant promises. He's made a loving commitment to his people. I am your God and you are my people. But what's interesting in this psalm is here the word is plural. 
And so an older translation renders this as, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. You might remember, some of you who are older, a praise song. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. We all know that one. It's based on this verse. And I like the plural because it emphasized not just a thing, but an abundance. God's mercies, what does it say elsewhere? Are new every morning. They're abundant. They're lavished upon his people. He loves his people with a great love, says Paul in Ephesians, and is rich in mercy toward us. This is what the psalmist has in mind. The abundant mercies, the abundant steadfast loves, if I can put it that way, of the Lord our God. We'll see it in in sections that kind of play on different themes. The first, talking about those mercies, verses 1 to 4. They're established forever in the heavens, it says in verse 2. The psalmist recalls the promise made to David in verses 3 and 4 that God promised him a son to sit on his throne forever for all generations and, and quotes from 2 Samuel 7. Verses 5 to 8 see the covenant faithfulness of God being praised in the heavens themselves. Verse 5, let the heavens praise Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord in verse 6? He is the one who is feared. He is the one who is mighty. The covenant faithfulness, the covenant Lord is celebrated even in the heavens. And then verses 9 to 13 bring this down to earth. There's a a widening of this psalm from the broad, abundant covenant mercies of God. Now we go to heaven, now we go to earth, and we're going to get to David, and we're going to get to David's son. So now we're on earth in verses 9 to 13. This is where God rules. This is where God crushes his enemies. All creation is his and gives him praise in verses 11 to 13. Verses 14 to 18. God's covenant faithfulness to his people. His covenant people. God's rule is a blessing to his people in verses 14 to 16. He's their glory. He brings them strength. They and their king belong to him in verses 17 and 18. Then we have a long section from verses 19 to 29 where that faithfulness of God to David himself is remembered and celebrated. David is God's chosen king in verse 19. Echoing again, verse 3, the chosen one, the chosen king. He's anointed by God himself with God's own holy oil to be king in verse 20, recalling Samuel's actions. He's been strengthened and protected and given success by God himself so that his enemies are crushed, verses 21 to 23. And God is so with David that his kingdom is from the sea to the river, and recollection of the territory conquered by David, from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean Sea, the promised land. God is like a father to David and a savior to him, in verse 26. And then again, the psalmist reflects upon the covenant made with David concerning his son in verses 20 
7 to 29. He's the firstborn, the kings of the earth. Steadfast love I'll keep with him forever. My covenant will stand firm. I'll establish his offspring forever. His throne is the days of heaven. That's the promise God made to David. Verses 30 to 37 continue this idea of God's covenant with David, but now gets into a little bit of the history of Israel, of David's sons. God promised to discipline them. And the psalmist celebrates this. You did exactly what you promised you would do. You disciplined the sons of David. He recounts that part of the covenant first in verses 30 to 33. If his children forsake my law, do not walk according to my rules. If they violate my statutes, do not keep my commandments, I will punish their transgression. Their iniquity was stripes. But I will not remove from him, from David, my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. God will discipline, but he's never going to forget that promise that he made to David. And so that idea is recounted once again. The repeated theme of this psalm, the promise you made to David to give him a son in verses 34 to 37. God's promise, I will not violate my covenant. I will not alter the word that went forth from my lips. I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. Again, that promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7. His throne as long as the sun before me, the moon, the faithful witnesses in the skies that mark the times and the seasons. My promise is as sure as the sun and the moon. What a celebration of the faithfulness of God by Ethan the Ezraite. But now the tone of the Psalms changes in verse 38. Elsewhere we like to say, but is one of the most happy and hopeful words in Scripture. Paul writes about <clears throat> our sin and the, the wrath of God due to us for our sin and says, but now. And we go, thankfully God has done something for us. Here it's reversed. Look at the faithfulness of God. Look at the promises He's made. Oh, but look at what's going on now. This is a different kind of a turn. Now you've cast us off. You've rejected us. You're full of wrath against your anointed. God is doing this. Look at the repeated use, especially in verses 38 to 45, of the pronoun you. Ethan the Ezraite is speaking to God. You did this. (coughs) You are full of wrath. You've renounced the covenant. You've defiled David's crown. You breached his walls. You ruined his strongholds. You exalted his foes. You made his enemies rejoice. You turned back his sword. You made him fall in battle. You made his splendor cease. You cast his throne down. You have cut short the days of his youth. Think of what happened to the kings at the end of of the kingdom of Judah. Their reigns were short. They didn't live very long. Think of living in that kind of an environment, that kind of an atmosphere. One son of David following after the other, living a short life, ruling a short period of time. What chaos, what uncertainty. You did this, the psalmist says to God. 
You have covered him with shame. Now what the psalmist is really saying is you fulfilled the promise that you made that you would discipline the sons of David. They've been brought low. That's not the work of the foreign powers that have attacked us, Assyria and Egypt and finally Babylon. It's your work, God. You did this. You brought it about. We don't like to think that way, but the psalmist affirms it repeatedly and without hesitation. But then we get to verses 46 to 52. Discipline is not the only promise of the covenant. Punishment is not the only promise made. Where is the promised son? How long, O Lord? How long will you hide yourself? Forever? How long will your wrath burn against us? How long is this discipline going to continue? My life is short. I'm a human being. And it's rather pointless and futile. Ethan the Ezraite is wise. He, he's, he either knows or has read Ecclesiastes. And my life is short. When are you going to fulfill your promise? Where is your steadfast love of old, the basis of your covenant with David? Remember us. Remember your servants. Remember how we're insulted by the nations around us and mocked by our enemies. How long, Lord, are you going to let this state of affairs continue? How long? How long do we have to wait? But then the psalm ends. It's a short end. It's kind of an abrupt end. But I think it's a simple declaration of faith. Verse 52, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. How can the psalmist say that? Because God is a covenant God. He keeps his promises. There is in this blessing offered to the Lord, I think an implied expression of hope. Not wishful thinking, but certain hope. God is going to fulfill his promise. Because God is a promise-keeping God. And so may he be blessed forever. Amen and amen. This is a powerful psalm. There's passion and deep longing. Very direct conversation with God going on in this psalm. So what do we make of it? What do we learn from it? Let me offer two, three simple lessons. One, look at, again, this structure divided into two parts. This is very helpful for us, I think, in making application of the psalm. A long section A praise given to God for his covenant faithfulness, followed by this expression of longing and and desire. I think very practically the psalm is a model for us and how we can express our own longings and deep desires to the Lord our God. Quite frankly, it's a model for how we can make requests to people around us as well. Let's start there first. Think about... (laughs) going in to ask your boss for something, or your teacher, or your parent, or your spouse, or someone that you're hoping will help you out with something. Typically, especially when that 
request comes from some deep longing desire in our hearts, we jump right to the request. I want this. <laughs> Give me this, especially if it was promised to us. You promised, when am I going to get it? When am I going to get that raise? When am I going to get that promotion? When am I going to get that extra credit that I need or want? When are you going to get around to that honeydew list I gave you? We, we do it with elders and deacons at church, too. When are you guys going to get around to doing what we talked about? Why don't you change this? Why don't you do that? <coughs> but consider Ethan the Ezraite. He's very wise. If I were cynical, I'd say that he buttered up God before he made his request. But God can't be buttered up, let's be honest. But he shows respect to God. He acknowledges who God is and what God has done. Wouldn't it be wiser if we did that with those around us as well? Not to manipulate, but genuinely. I mean, if it's a teacher or a boss or a, a spouse or a friend, there are things that you can remember in the past, the foundation of your relationship, things that have happened. Boy, I really, I really appreciate this. I, I really am thankful for this. Spend some time reminding them of how much you love them and why you love them, why you're thankful for them. How much easier than it is to grant the request when it comes because it's based on mutual love and appreciation. Well, that's something simple we can do in our lives. But if that's true in our lives, how much more is it true with God himself? Psalm 89 is a model for how to approach God especially and even about those things that we can legitimately claim that he promised to us. 75% of the psalm, approximately, is praise to God, celebrating his faithfulness, his love, his steadfast love, his mercies that abound over and over and over and over again. The psalm celebrates who God is and what he's done. Only after doing this does Ethan turn to God and express the deep longings of his heart. How long, Lord, before you fulfill your promises? And so his request doesn't burst out. It's not petulant. It's not disrespectful. Rather, it's plaintive and it's heartfelt. I trust you, God. I've seen what you've done in the past. I've experienced your covenant faithfulness and your mercy toward me. I know what kind of a God you are. You promised this. Will you not do it? Will you not do it soon? Something for us to think about. Is this how we pray to God? Is this how we approach Him? Or do we jump right to the requests? God, i got a lot of things to bring before you. i got to need a lot of answers. It's helpful to recall that little prayer acronym I think we all know. ACTS, A-C-T-S. Adore God. Spend some time adoring Him. Spend some time confessing your sins before him. Spend some time being thankful for what he's done for you. Then your heart will be in a wonderful place to present your request, your supplications to God. It's a wonderful way to approach prayer. That's what Ethan does here in this wonderful, amazing psalm. But broader than these things, When you get right down to it, this psalm 
is or ought to be the cry of our hearts as well. You see, Ethan the Ezraite's request was fulfilled. The longing of his heart did come about in the fullness of time. And it was a full amount of time because it was almost a thousand years between God's promise to David and the coming of David's son. The promise was fulfilled. We know this. We celebrate it in just a few days. The eternal son who sits on David's throne forever. Jesus Christ himself came, born a son of David. Both Luke and Matthew testify to this truth. We celebrate that, and we should celebrate that wondrous truth, that wondrous birth. This son of David, this king, came and saw Satan and his kingdom fall like lightning from the sky. He came and established his own kingdom, kingdom not of this world. The son of David came and defeated our greatest enemy, Satan, our own sin, and death itself. Did this by living his righteous life, keeping all of God's law perfectly, not being guilty or deserving any punishment whatsoever from God, but yet willingly taking it upon himself. as a substitute for his very own people. Paid the price, paid the penalty for his people's sins. And then says, here, you can have my obedience as yours. How do you get it? Receive it. Accept it. By grace, through faith. Simply put your faith and trust in him. Proof of that great work is that he rose from death and now rules and reigns at the Father's right hand. Why this psalm applies to us today, why it's the longing of our hearts, Jesus left us with a promise. I'm coming again. I'm coming again to establish my kingdom once and for all. To judge the nations, to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Man, Ethan the Ezraite waited. The people of Israel waited a thousand years. That's a long time. How long has it been since Christ arose and ascended into heaven? Two thousand years. We are waiting. I can look at this psalm. (laughs) How long? Verse 46. How long, O Lord? How long is it going to take? Now we know there's other promises attached to this as well. Every single one of those whose names is written, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life must come in. Some from every tongue and tribe and nation. We know there is work to be done. Lord, will you finish that work? Look at the world around us. Is not what is true for Ethan the Ezraite true for us today? Look at verse 50. Your servants are mocked. We are insulted by all those around us. They mock us. They mock our lives and the way that we walk. Is that not true for us today? But like like for Ethan the Ezraite, don't we deserve it? Look at the way the church has abandoned biblical truth in so many ways. 
the tremendous errors in doctrine, the mystical, superstitious practices that we, that we cling to, to so quickly, the lies that permeate the church. I just saw a video this week. The wife of a pastor of a large church in South Texas stood up before the congregation preaching a sermon and said, Jesus Christ was just a man until God the Father put the Holy Spirit in it. Brothers and sisters, that's heresy. People don't go to heaven for believing that. And yet thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people attend this church and view its services on television week after week after week after week. Do we not deserve the punishment that God is giving to us, the discipline that he is putting our way? And does not that make, it makes my heart yearn for Christ to come again. Put this all to rest. Save your people. Send the king. You promised. And I have no problem going before God and saying, you promised this to me and to us and to your people. How long, O Lord? Send your son. Send him soon. Where is the king? Where is Jesus? My life is short and futile. (laughs) And there are enemies all around. Do you long for that? Deeper than any hope or wishful thinking or mere want or desire, do you deeply long for the return of David's son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Now, God's timing is not our timing. What's long to us is short for him. A thousand years is like a day. But Christ is coming. God will fulfill his promise. May he do so, and may he do so soon. In the meantime, I love verse 52. (laughs) Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do acknowledge your greatness and your wonder, your mercies that are new every morning, that are abundant and overflow to us in ways that sometimes we are just too foolish to see or acknowledge. Open our eyes. Show us what you have done for us. Remind us. Don't ever let us forget these things. The small and the large as well. Especially do not ever let us forget, lose faith in, lose hope in, or turn away from Christ our Savior. Keep our eyes firmly fixed upon Him. And may the things of earth grow dim in the light of His glory and of His grace. We do ask, Lord, that you would have mercy upon us, that you would see the plight of your people. We know that we have sinned. We know that there is great error among us and that we tolerate it all too readily. But have mercy upon us. How long, Lord? How long until Christ comes again? May he come and may he come quickly. 
We entrust all things. The bringing of your people into the church and the coming of our Savior for those same people. We entrust those to your fatherly care, knowing that you love us and that all things that happen are for our good according to your purpose for us. Be with us and watch over us as we go from here. May you be blessed forever and ever. All of this we ask in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.